James chapter 3, verses 13, all the way through chapter 4, verse 3. And Eunice is going to come and read that for us. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Well, what is it that makes people wise? I've been thinking about this this week. What is it that constitutes wisdom? Now, one could think of a number of factors, couldn't they? The first could be age or experience. We think of the wise old owl. Um, or if you watch Star Wars, Yoda is quite wise, isn't he? 9,000 years old, if my memory serves me well. Um, and if we think about people who are wise today, we, we, we think of those who have age and experience. Perhaps someone like the Queen. The Queen has been on the throne since 1952. She is in her 90s. Um, she has a level of, of wisdom, surely, as she, it, that's evident that we've seen um, in her role. I think that many would consider someone like David Attenborough to be wise. He's someone with lots of experience and understanding in communicating the beauty of the natural world to us. He's someone quite revered in our culture, I would say. So there's age and experience. But not just that, wisdom involves intelligence and insight as well. So um, in, wise people can make sense of quite complex situations. So if you think about someone like Martin Lewis, I don't know if you've ever used the website Money Saving Expert, or Martin Lewis set that up. And he, he's wise, he's able to understand all the complexities of the financial and economic world so that he can help um, consumers in terms of choosing everything from a mobile phone contract to what bank loan they should get and savings accounts. Wise people are often called to predict future events as well. Our nation has relied in large part and our government has relied on the wisdom of people like Sir Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty to be able to predict and analyse what's happening with the coronavirus and infection rates and therefore what sort of measures should be put in place. So all these things factor in to wisdom, age, experience, intelligence, insight. But it's not just those things. I think we, we have an intuition that wisdom is not just about that, but there's a moral quality to it as well. Wise choices are morally good choices. Well, we all want wisdom, don't we? We, we, we want to be wise. All of us want that. We go through life making 
endless decisions with multiple possibilities and we want to make sure that we're choosing the right paths. We don't want to get to the end of our life and look back on it and think that we wasted our life or that we made the wrong choices and have big regrets over our decisions. We all yearn to live a wise life. But how can we find out what true wisdom is? Well, the Bible claims that it has the answer. And the truth is that the Bible says that wisdom can come even if you don't have lots of age or experience, even if you don't have loads of intellect or insight. In fact, in the Bible here this morning, the living God has shown us what true wisdom is. It's here in James. And who knows, its essence might surprise you. So we're going to look at that this morning. Now, we're in this letter um, that James, who was an early leader in the Christian church based in Jerusalem, he's written. He's writing to Christians and he's trying to encourage them to um, a real faith, a faith that works itself out in, in practical good deeds. He doesn't want a Christianity in name only. He's encouraging Christians to live consistently with the calling that they've been given. Last week, we saw that he was calling um, people... Christians to, to live um, a godly life in the way that they use their, their, their tongues and regarding their speech. But today he shifts tack a little bit and he talks about this matter of wisdom. And so we want to see what he has to say. And through him, what does God say to us this morning about true wisdom? Well, the first thing we want to see is this. You may not be as wise as you think. You may not be as wise as you think. So look down at verse 13. James starts this section and he issues a challenge. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? So who is it that considers themselves not to be foolish, but to have a good grasp on how to live? And you might imagine people in the churches to whom James is talking to think to themselves, yeah, I reckon I'm pretty wise. And then he goes on. He says, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. If you're truly wise, James says, then prove it. Prove it by your humility and by your good works. But then he issues a challenge, verse 14. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. And what James seems to be getting at here is that there are certain people who think they are wise, but are actually not. So how do we gauge wisdom? How do we separate the wise from the unwise? And for James, notice, the key factor is not what goes on in the head, but what goes on in the heart. He mentions bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. So let's get this clear. The Bible says that you could have a really high IQ You could have a postgraduate degree from Oxbridge. You could have the insight to predict stock market trends or cultural trends. You might be able to read people, including your children, grasp what makes them tick and be able to appeal to them and influence them. You could have had years of experience in your job or in your role and still not actually be wise. Because what matters, according to James, is your heart at the level of motive. That's what matters. For all your achievements and skills, 
If they come from a place of self-ambition or envy, you lack wisdom, true wisdom. Well, why does he mention envy and selfish ambition? Well, together these terms represent a selfish drive to get what you want. And that drive will push away God and it will push away other people. So the word envy by itself actually just means zeal and passion. But when it's connected to that word bitter at the beginning, it, it has this sense of being jealous. I want this thing and it's all important that I get it. Jealousy. Or selfish ambition. That sort of gives the sense of, you know, I want this thing and I'm willing to sacrifice the needs of others in order to get it. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. And James says that motive is the key differential between what is false wisdom and what is true wisdom. And James is pointing to a danger. There seems to be a danger that we fool ourselves, that we think we are wise when actually we're not. That's why he says in, in verse 14, if you have envy and selfish ambition, don't boast about it. His point is that some people will pat themselves on the back for being so wise in a particular area when actually they're not wise at all. So let's think in concrete terms. Let's take an area like money or finances. Okay. Now you may be a meticulous steward of your money. You may have sorted out your savings. You've got good pension contributions. You use the Monzo app on your phone. Um, your budget spreadsheet might be a thing of beauty. And you might be able to sense that actually you're gifted in this area of managing your finances in a way that other people are not. You may feel like you have a sort of wisdom in that area. But James would say, okay, but what's driving that? What's your motive? Are you stingy? Are you storing up for yourself goods and money that you're unwilling to serve others with? If someone needy comes along, are you willing to share with them? Or is it all selfish? in order to bolster your security or to spend on nice things just for yourself. If that's the case, James says, you can't boast about it because you're not wise. You're not wise. And the same is true with other things, whether it's our, our intelligence, our use of time, the way we conduct friendships, our jobs, uh, things that we feel particularly experienced and skilled at. You may be really adept at any of those things, but if under the surface you do them for a drive a selfish drive, then you're not wise. You're not wise. In fact, worse than that, verse 14, it says, you've denied the truth. You're denying the truth about what wisdom is. You're living a lie, James says. So think of it as, as an equation. You know, experience, intelligence or age, plus selfishness equals false wisdom. It's not true wisdom, false wisdom. And James goes further, verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Demonic? Isn't that striking? Wisdom without a pure heart motivation comes from hell. And when we think about demonic powers or whatever, we have certain images that come to mind, five-pointed stars, Ouija boards, and people being possessed. But James comes along and says, well, do you want to know what's demonic? Look at the person who is highly skilled. Look at the person who is experienced. 
and yet uses their talents and their gifts only for themselves. That's demonic. And he's talking to people in the church. He's talking to Christians. Demonic wisdom is at play even in the Christian community. Isn't that sobering to think about? Now we've seen the difference between true and false wisdom. We've seen that it's at heart level. And so therefore it's not necessarily discernible on outward appearances. However, there is an outward element to false wisdom. It doesn't mean that there are no external signs. Look at verse 16. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you have disorder and every evil practice. So when you have this false wisdom that's driven by selfish ambition, James says it will inevitably leave a trail of destruction one way or another in its wake. In the end, the proof is in the pudding. False wisdom leads to disorder and all kinds of evil practices. And I think we see this to varying degrees. Think about some um, business leaders, for example. I I read Steve Jobs' biography a few years ago. Many would see Jobs as a a visionary person, a worldly wise person, and he he was in many ways, very, very gifted and talented. He achieved so much. When you read about um, some of his habits in the workplace, particularly in, in the early days of Apple, you can see that he was difficult and actually that he had a sense of ambition and envy that as a leader it meant he was very difficult to work with. He was known to be able to lash out in an instant without warning. His workers were terrified of him and often burnt out for having to work so hard. One of the original Mac team, a woman called Joanna Hoffman, said this about him. He had the uncanny capacity to know exactly what your weak point is, know what will make you feel small and to make you cringe. And knowing that he can crush you makes you feel weakened and eager for his approval. That's what would go on in in Jobs' mind. That was his leadership style. And so despite all his real gifts, James would say that he would be characterised by a false wisdom. It led to disorder in people's lives. But of course, false wisdom comes closer to home, doesn't it? I think about myself. You know, when I was younger, I used to have theological debates with my dad. Uh, I considered myself, in some of those cases, to know more than him. I would have considered myself wiser, perhaps, in my more honest moments. But the tone of some of those conversations was really unhealthy at points, particularly in in my heart. I was quite nitpicky. Um, I could be arrogant and judgmental. And I would end up being disrespectful to a man who had raised me. Now, I probably thought myself superior and wiser in those moments, but I wasn't truly wise. Selfish ambition was at play, and it showed itself in my desire to prove myself right. And what was the result? Well, there there were times of disorder. There was tension in our relationship at at times. So whether I was right or not, I, I wasn't wise. False wisdom leads to disorder. What does this look like for you? Think of what you're good at. Think of where you have experience, uh, skill, knowledge. Think of an area of life where God has given you gifts, perhaps more so than other people. Now look at your heart. To what extent has bitter envy and selfish ambition fueled 
your behavior. We may not be as wise as we think we are. Well, can we say more about this disorder and evil practice then? The sorts of things that result from false wisdom. Yes, we can. And James points us to one particular area where you can see this false wisdom playing out. And that's the area of conflict. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. He refers to fights and quarrels. So secondly, we're going to see false wisdom causes conflict. And this is where it really hits home for us, I think, because we all experience conflict, whether it's all out um, brawls with other people, um, verbal attacks, or whether little niggles, quarrels, irritations and frustrations, we all experience them. And James says that it's a, a lack of true wisdom which is behind them. Now, chapter 4, verse 1 is a crucial question, isn't it? What is it that causes fights and quarrels? And if we ask ourselves that question in various situations, we will answer it in various ways. What caused you to fly off the handle that time? Oh, well, it's because they, that person really knows how to push my buttons. Why are you still feeling bitterness in this broken relationship? Well, they really hurt me. That's why I still feel bitter. What caused you to get so angry whilst you were driving? Well, they cut me up. How else was I going to respond? We often believe that our conflicts and our responses to those conflicts are caused by external factors. The other person or our tiredness or things outside of our hearts. But James doesn't agree. Look at what he says. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So our fights, our irritation, our anger, it comes from within. Now, it's not that external circumstances are insignificant. Of course they're not. If someone says something hurtful to you, you're going to feel hurt. They, of course they play a role. But our full response in the moment and over the long term depends entirely on our hearts entirely on our hearts. And we know this because, you know, the same situation can bring out different responses from different people. So the Christian counsellor, um, David Paulison, used the illustration of a traffic jam. You know what it's like to get stuck in a traffic jam, perhaps on your way um, home from somewhere, on your way to work, and, you're, and, and the, the traffic ceases, the cars in front of you stopped, and you start getting irritated. Um, you tap the steering wheel, You'll say to yourself, come on, come on. You, you start feeling stressed. But then in a car next to you, there may be someone completely chilled out at the fact that they're stuck in a traffic jam. They've reclined the seats. They're enjoying listening to the radio. They're taking a moment to relax. And it's the same situation and yet two different responses. Why? Well, because it's not the situation primarily that causes our response. It's what's in our hearts. Notice the end of verse 1, where James says that conflicts come from desires that battle within you. Battle. So for every external conflict, there's an internal one going on. There are varying desires that fight for the supremacy of your heart. There'll be godly desires to, to love God, to serve other people. But then there'll be other desires. Desires to be successful. Desires to um, gain others' approval. Desires to be proved right, in the case of uh, me and my 
little spats with my father. Um, conflict happens and it isn't resolved because of these desires that battle in our hearts. We want our will to be done, basically, and when it isn't, we lash out. I remember about six months ago, um, it was the end of a long day at work and a long week. It was a Friday evening and I'd had a fairly stressful day at work and I was looking forward to chilling out and relaxing in front of the TV. So after I finished work, I went for a walk, I came back, I cleaned up uh, in our front room, I did a bit of the washing up, I kind of prepared the space so it was good to relax in that evening. I was looking forward to sitting in front of the TV uh, with Hannah and just relaxing. Now I came, what happened was I, I went to take the bins out and then when I came in, um, I'd seen that Hannah had accidentally, my wife had accidentally knocked over a glass vase. There were shards of glass everywhere. There was water all over the floor, bits of flowers all over our living room. It had gone underneath the furniture. Um, and I, I saw this scene in front of me and I saw that Hannah was quite upset from having knocked the vase over. What was my response in that moment? I did this. That's what I did. I didn't shout. I didn't vent my frustration. I just went quiet and kept my frustration inside. One of the outworkings of that was that I closed myself off um, for, from Hannah. I wasn't particularly consoling. So I helped clear up the mess, but I did so visibly annoyed. Now, what was going on in my response there? I wasn't particularly loving in that moment. Instead, I was internally angry. Why? Because in my heart at that moment, there was a desire for comfort. I've had a long day, I told myself. What I deserve right now is to be able to relax. You know, all I wanted to do was just clean things up, get things sorted, and then enjoy my evening. And now I can't do that. That was what's going on. My will had not been done. My desire for comfort had fought with the desire to be loving to my wife in that moment and to one of the Lord, and you could guess which one had won. Now, the shattered vase didn't cause me to be irritated. I can't blame the vase. You know, for someone else in that situation, I'm sure they would have been more comforting and consoling um, to my wife who was upset. Oh no, don't worry about the vase. Look, let's, let's clean it up. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But in my case, the smashed vase had created a situation where my desire for comfort had been threatened. And so I acted unhealthily. See, this is how fights, quarrels, frustrations, anger, this is how it all happens. External factors don't determine your response, but your heart does. It's the desires that are within you. The pressure of the situation just brings to the surface what was there in your heart all along. This is what James means in verse 2. You desire but you do not have, so you kill. Now that might be literal or may perhaps more likely be a figurative reference, but we, we attack others. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. It's the desire that's key. And notice as well, these heart issues, they work themselves out horizontally in terms of your relationships with other people, but they're indicative of your relationship vertically with God himself. Look at verse 2. 
the end of it. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And do you notice the two problems there? First, we don't ask God. Prayerlessness. We crave various things, but we don't want to talk to God about them. We try and grasp them for ourselves. So that evening, did I pray for a relaxing evening? I I imagine I probably didn't. But the second problem is worse. Praying, but with wrong motives. So we ask God for stuff that will feed our desires, but without any real desire for him or for his people. So we may desire success in our parenting or in our career. We may crave that more than anything. In fact, it may become a desire that's over the top, inordinate, and it becomes the first thing in our hearts above serving God and serving other people. It may become an idol, and then we ask God to give us the idol. So God becomes then, in that moment, not a father, but a vending machine, who we expect to give us our desires. Why should God answer those prayers? That's what James says. And yet, we all do this, don't we? We all do this at times. It's so sad. So let's back up a a sec and, and just ask a few questions then. Particularly on this issue of quarrels and fighting. Are you in conflict with anybody at the moment? Or are you finding yourself reacting negatively in pressure um, situations or conflict situations? Do you, do you show outbursts or, or respond unhealthily? And do you excuse those quarrels and those responses by appealing to outside factors? If you do, James says, consider your desires. Consider what it is that's inside you. And we see that we're back to this link of what James says about false wisdom, bitter envy and selfish ambition. We, we all have selfish ambition. We're working for self-oriented um, desires. And this is the, the false wisdom that shows itself in conflict. Well, God help us. We all do this, don't we? Okay, well, we've, we've seen what false wisdom is then. And we've seen how false wisdom works itself out, including in conflict. What about true wisdom? What's true wisdom? Well, finally, true wisdom brings peace. So in between James's description of false wisdom and conflict, we get a middle section, chapter 3, verses 17 to 18. And, And here we see what true wisdom is. And this is the wisdom that comes from heaven. It's not the false, earthly, demonic wisdom. And James says, if you want to be able to spot this true wisdom, you will be able to by the fact that it is peaceful. There's a big emphasis of peace on peace in these verses. It talks about peace loving, peacemakers who sow in peace. So where false wisdom uh, works itself out in conflict and disorder, true wisdom will work itself out in peace. And that's what we all want, isn't it? Peace. We, we want it in our families. We want it in our work situations and our relationships and friendships. And verse 17 lists a number of characteristics of this wisdom. And all of them lead to peace. So first of all, it's pure. 
this true wisdom is, is pure. That's, it's innocent. It's not um, characterized by the selfishness that we described earlier. It's considerate. Now, that makes a big difference, doesn't it, in relational dynamics and definitely in conflict situations. If you are considerate, if you're considering the other person and thinking what's best for them, that's going to make a difference. The, the oxygen that feeds the fires of conflict, it gets starved. Can you, if both parties are considerate of the other person, you, you can see how that just completely changes the situation of conflict. It's also submissive. Another way of translating this would be open to reason. So it doesn't mean um, someone who's truly wise is like a doormat who gets walked all over. What it means is there's a willingness to be corrected. So a submissive person will say, hey, where, where have I got this wrong? Um, is, is there a part of me here that's, that's not treating you rightly or, or, or responding correctly? Or, have I got something wrong here? Please, please show me. And again, you can see that sort of attitude and posture is going to lead to more peace in our relationships, isn't it? That willingness to listen. It's full of mercy and good fruit. And that's someone who will be fruitful in their actions, doing good deeds. And finally, the wisdom will be impartial and sincere. That is, this per, uh, the, the peaceful person, the wise person, will not be biased. And there won't be a hypocrite. But the sort of person who has integrity, what you see is what you get. Now, can you imagine a workplace where all of these qualities are lived out? Bosses and colleagues who care for each other, who are considerate. Can you imagine a family where this wisdom is present? Parents and children who are open to reason. Can you imagine a church where this is present? Surely it would be a light to the world, wouldn't it? And look at the results, verse 18. People with this sort of wisdom gain peace and a harvest of righteousness just an overflow crops and crops of goodness in community it's a completely different vision to the conflict and disorder that false wisdom brings well that's what true wisdom looks like then that's that's its external expression but what's its beating heart and the answer is back in verse 13 Remember, Jesus says, uh, James says, sorry, um, you know, if you consider yourself wise, show it. Show it by your wisdom. Um, show your wisdom by good deeds done in humility. And this is the key for us here, humility. It's translated meekness in some other translations. And James says that there's something humble. There's a meekness about those who are truly wise. This is the core aspect of true wisdom, the source from which everything else flows. Yes, age and experience and insight and intelligence will all aid you in being wise, but they're not the most fundamental thing. You don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have lived till you're 80 to be truly wise. True wisdom comes from humility. That is primarily a humility before God, as well as other people. So if you grasp who you are before the creator of all and you act accordingly, then you will be wise. 
And this humility really only comes from understanding the gospel story. We've spoken about conflict already, haven't we? The opposite of peace. It's a part of everyday life. We all experience it to one degree or another. But our, vert- our horizontal conflicts point us to a greater, more profound um, vertical po- conflict. The Bible says that there is a conflict between humanity and God. That we are at war with our maker. Now this isn't a war that God started. It's not a war that God desired. Actually, it's a war that we started. We initiated it. We wanted to turn away uh, from the God who made us and his design for our lives. Our selfish ambition and bitter envy um, characterized our relationship with him as well as with others. We rejected him and the results are profound. There's now a hostility between us and between God. So much so that the Bible speaks of us as God's opponents. Just look in the next section, um, chapter 4, verse 4. There's a phrase there, enemy of God. Enemy of God. Now just think about that for a second. Just think about what that phrase means. What hope is there for someone who has the infinite eternal creator as their enemy? The one who invented life as their foe. We saw that at the beginning of the service, didn't we? That God is holy. The angels cover their faces in his presence. He's so glorious and powerful. What does it mean to have him as our enemy? So we may have started this war against God, but it's not one that we can finish. We cannot win it. And we, we are in desperate need of peace. And the Bible says that God has worked to bring peace. He sent his son, Jesus, to come to earth into, as C.S. Lewis called it, enemy-occupied territory. He came as the Prince of Peace to make things right, but this could only happen through his betrayal and death and resurrection. He became, as it were, a prisoner of war. He was arrested and tortured and killed on the cross. And yet he went willingly to bear the death we deserved in our place and rise again three days later. And it's through this work that he's able to offer peace to humanity who are currently enemies with God. It's interesting, after his resurrection, when he visits his disciples all together, the first thing he says to them is, peace to you, peace to you. And these are to the same friends who denied him and um, fled away from him in his hour of need. But he says the word peace. Verse 17 in James um, says that the wisdom that comes from heaven is pure and peace-loving. That's truer than we know, because Jesus came from heaven to bring peace. And for everyone who trusts in him, war is over. The weapons are put down. Our sins can be forgiven, and we can be reunited with our maker. Not not as an opponent, not as a foe, but as a friend. With Jesus even as our lover.
What's this going to do then? How does this help bring wisdom? Well, for the Christian who understands what Jesus has done as the bringer of peace, their posture is going to be one of humility. They're going to understand that actually they could do nothing in themselves to negotiate peace with God. It was actually all on God's initiative and it was all his work. In fact, it took the death of his son in order to make peace. It took that much of a cost in order for there to be peace between us and God. That is humbling. That is humbling. There's a, a song, um, once again, the chorus goes like this. Once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside. Jesus' death, the gospel story, it humbles us. But it also shows us that peace is beautiful. The peace we have with God, the relationship restored with our maker, is so much more beautiful than being at enmity with him. And we know, don't we, when we've experienced peace, when friendships, when we've had conflicts that have been resolved, when we've had bitterness that's dissolved, um, when we experience peace in our families and our, and our communities, there's something beautiful about it. And Jesus exemplifies that in the peace that he's brought to us, peace between us and God. And so that's going to change us when we grasp that. So we're going to be humble. We'll have that humility that comes with true wisdom. And therefore, we're going to seek the peace that the Bible says here is, is uh, characteristic of that wisdom. Just to finish up here then, perhaps you've seen today that your life has actually been characterized by a lot of false wisdom. Maybe you've seen that you're not as wise as you thought you were. Perhaps the, the selfish ambition and bitter envy have been characteristic of certain areas of your life for quite a long time. And maybe you can now have fresh eyes to see how that has impacted other relationships, how it's brought disorder, brokenness with other people. Maybe you're seeing that when you've had quarrels or when you've seen the responses that come out of your heart, that's not just all to do with other people and external circumstances, though they are a factor, but actually it's been to do with your motives, your, the drives and desires that are, that are wrong, that are inside you. Maybe you realise even today that you're not the peacemaker that you should have been. Well, this morning, the Prince of Peace offers hope. See, if you're a Christian this morning, see again what Jesus has done for you. He has brought peace. It's a peace that's enabling you to flourish and blossom spiritually. It's a peace that's made you right with God as ensuring a a wonderful eternity. It's a beautiful thing. If you see that and grasp that, then, you know, humble yourself. You don't have to have a high IQ to be wise. You don't have to have lots of um, experience. But if you see the gospel, humble yourself. See what it took to save you and ask God for help so that you can be a peacemaker. Perhaps there's someone even today, who you need to make peace with. You need to be considerate towards. You need to 
perhaps ask for forgiveness for your side of a, of a battle, I'd encourage you to do that today. And if you're not a Christian and listening into this, well, the Prince of Peace offers you that most profound peace. Maybe you've had a look in and, and, and seen what, just a glimpse of what the true, true peace is, to be reconciled to the one who made you. You do not have to be an enemy with God. Jesus says, come to me, trust in me, and you can experience this peace too. Maybe that's something for you to consider. Either way, we all need help, don't we? We all need help to be peacemakers, to exercise this true wisdom. So let's ask God for his help in that now. Heavenly Father, we do. We thank you that you have brought peace through your son. We thank you that he is the true peacemaker. That through his death and resurrection, we've been made right with you. That the conflict, that the war that actually we declared with you has been brought to an end. And we can be restored and we can enjoy that um, reconciled relationship with you. Father, we, we admit that there are many ways in which we have not been peacemakers, that there's been a false wisdom that's characterized much of us. And, and maybe we're realizing that in new ways this morning. Lord, please convict us of that, but help us. By your Holy Spirit, please give us the power to be able to start um, living our lives according to true wisdom. Help us to be humble. Help us to be obedient. Help us to see peace as the best way. Please, God. And for those of us, Lord, who do not yet know you, we pray that you'd work in our hearts even now this morning by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see the Lord Jesus as the Prince of Peace and help us to embrace him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.